discussion on infection and urologic implants. I'm the moderator, Daniel Shoskis, from the Cleveland Clinic. There are multiple ongoing challenges in urologic device infections. Diagnosis and identification of bacteria can be challenging if the bacteria is not shed readily into accessible fluids or spaces. Antibiotic resistance can be a problem, especially if selected for by heavy antibiotic pretreatment. Penetration of the antibiotic into the protected environment of the device or biofilm can be a challenge and can decrease the effectiveness of the immune response. Finally, the burden and timing of device removal and our exchange continues to be a problem. To address these issues, we've assembled an international panel. First, we're going to hear a talk on Foley catheters and biofilm from Dr. Florian Wagenlehner from Gießen, Germany. Then, urine cultures and artificial urinary sphincter placement from Dr. Hadley Wood at Cleveland Clinic. And finally, infection and encrustation of stents from Dr. Kimora Scotland from UCLA. Thank you very much for these invitations. My talk is about Foley catheters and the biofilm. If we talk about the background of urinary catheters, then up to 25% of hospitalized patients have a urinary catheter in place, and in nursing home residents, up to 10% have a long-term indwelling urinary catheter in place. Often, these catheters are placed for inappropriate indications that physicians are frequently unaware that the catheter is in place. There are certain aspects that need to be addressed if we talk about urethral catheters. It's on the one hand biofilm, infectious biofilm formations. We have encrustations and preterm blockage. And then we have, of course, also uh, aspects on the host like inflammations and infections. Um, Scoping review of the literature has looked into the morbidity of indwelling urinary catheters. And as you see here in this uh, slide, up to 100% have symptomatic bacterial infections, 90% have severe mechanical trauma, 80% of patients with a catheter have cytotoxicity or hypersensitivity reactions, 70% have encrustations and blockage, and even 70% have urethral stenosis and stricture. And especially in systemic infections, if a systemic infection is caused by urinary catheter, up to 60% of patients have a mortality after urosepsis. So these are severe complications caused by indwelling urinary catheters. The pathogenesis of catheter-associated UTI is very heterogeneous depending on the different bacteria. For example, Proteus mirabilis have a totally different bacterial pathogenesis uh, compared to Enterococcus faecalis. In Proteus mirabilis, crystalline biofilm formation is predominant, whereas in Enterococcus, the uh, pathology is led by a first uh, spherile inflammation, which leads to a fibrinogen release and fibrinogen deposition on the catheter, which further uh, uh, leads to biofilm formation. Now, if we want to study biofilm formation, there is no gold standard. There is no consensus up to now how we quantify the biofilm. Um, for example, in this publication, different methodologies have been compared. And depending on the methodology, it seems that a combination of vertexing and sonication has the highest bacterial lead and yield of uh, coniniform units out of the biofilm. If we look into how ex vivo the biofilm is 
should be assessed on a catheter, then this is a nice study where patients have been assessed one week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, and uh, longer. And as you see here, there is a difference with regards to the segment of the catheter that is being assessed. Always the distal segments have higher um, biofilm yields than the proximal segments. And in essence, there are predominant locations on a catheter that have different biofilm formations. The catheter tip and the balloon are more um, predominant locations for biofilm. Therefore, there needs also to be to a, a consensus how to investigate ex vivo. The similar is that we don't have a consensus on the best outcome if we look into clinical trials. All the trials have looked only at bacteria, and um, there, there might have been some benefit for antibiotic-coated or rather coated bacteria, but might not be the best endpoint to look into bacteriuria because more important is to look into symptomatic catheter-associated urinary tract infection, and this is publication of the large UK English catheter trial, and there was no difference between latex, silver, and nitrofluorescin-coated catheters, at least statistically on a long-term basis. Therefore, this is probably the more pronounced uh, endpoint that needs to be looked into in clinical trials. So what we have is currently education. There has been a rather recent study on education uh, and reduction of catheter-associated urinary tract infection rates. Um, with education, you can reduce the catheter uh, UTI rates from two to four to two catheter-associated UTI rates per thousand catheter days. This is uh, significant, but in this uh, large trial, it has been shown that the results were less than um, we were thinking. So in the end, we have performed a systematic review um, and in the most uh, questions we have asked, there was not much evidence to answer these questions. For indication duration of catheterization, yes, there is an evidence that catheters have to be reduced, that the time has to be reduced. With other typical questions like transurethral versus superpubic catheters, there was apparently no significant difference between the catheters and other people. Uh, such as clamping versus free urinary drainage irrigation, antiseptic implicated categories, there was not sufficient evidence to make a recommendation. So in the end, I can conclude biofilm formation is frequent. It causes morbidity, mortality. There's no golden standard how to investigate biofilm formation as well as with the clinical study. Probably symptomatic endpoints are much more meaningful. There's no optimal catheter material. So what we are left with is to reduce catheters and to reduce duration of catheters. Thank you very much. Thank you for this opportunity to speak to you about urine cultures and artificial urinary sphincter infections. We'll talk a little bit about incidence and risk factors for infections and sphincters. And then we'll talk a little bit about some perioperative measures you can take to minimize risk and diagnosis and treatment. So one of the primary things I would like for you to take away is that the concept of infection in artificial sphincter, there's actually true infection, which is a device that becomes infected at the time of implant or becomes infected when it's hematogenously um, uh, uh, seeded during an, a septic episode. Um, but more common than that is when a device you know, manifests as purulence and infection 
in the setting of urethral erosion and urinoma, then this is probably more common. So when we look at incidence of uh, infections in these devices, the numbers are really all over the place because there's a lot of um, uh, non-distinction between true infection and infection associated with erosion. So this is a um, this just shows you that probably around the total risk of infection and erosion in these uh, devices is somewhere probably between 10 and 12 percent. There was a large European study with approximately 900 cases, and the infection risk in that group at 20 months was 4.5%, and erosion risk was just over 6%. If you look specifically at devices that are infected, presumably at the time of implant, without uh, associated erosion, uh, really we have one study to point in that direction, and this is from Dan Elliott's group in Mayo. And he looked at devices that were explanted a couple months after implant without any concomitant erosion. And you see that about two-thirds of those um, pathogens are really skin flora that were likely introduced at the time of uh, implantation, and about one-third of them were uropathogens. So that sort of begs the question about whether urine cultures and treatment of positive urine cultures at the time of implant can help reduce the risk. One thing to know is that infections are pretty rare uh, immediately after implant, and the collection of a good specimen can be quite difficult because these patients are floridly incontinent. And so uh, the inside of the container is often contaminated with skin flora, and you often get back nonspecific culture results with low colony count. Two studies uh, looked at the association um, between preoperative cultures and, and post-explant uh, uh, device um, correlation, and actually there was very poor concurrence between preoperative cultures and post-explant post cultures. Uh, this group also uh, looked at infection rates of patients who had um, no urine cultures in just three days of antibiotics postoperatively, and the infection rate was very low. Probably both of these studies were underpowered to really detect a difference. The AUA guidelines recommend a single-dose aminoglycoside with either a second, first or second-generation cephalosporin or vancomycin pre-op. It's our practice to use uh, single-dose docin at the time of surgery because it has a uh, low uh, uh, nephrotoxicity, and it also has good enterococcal and pseudomonal coverage. In the past, uh, it, had, it had been suggested that a 10-minute iodine prep was optimal for GU devices. Uh, this is a study that looked at skin colonization following uh, prep with either a two-minute chlorhexidine alcohol prep compared with an iodine prep. And you can see particularly for coag-negative staph on the skin that the rates of um, of uh, infections in the iodine group was, or the, the rates of colonization in the iodine group was higher. There were no differences in infection rates, again, owing to the very low overall risk of infection. Technical considerations uh, generally come out of recommendations from other prosthetics, particularly penile prostheses, uh, and they include no-touch maneuvers to the skin at the time of implantation and tight blood glucose control, and then specific uh, factors associated with minimizing uh, the risk of cuff erosion. For a diagnosis, uh, these are typically uh, manifest as just local symptoms with scrotal or suprapubic pain, pain along the tubing with erythema, and sometimes a fluid collection as shown here in these CT scans. If a patient presents with retention, dysuria, and gross or microhematuria, 
he should have a suspicion for cuff erosion and prepare the patient for um, possibly a repair of the urethra or long-term indwelling catheter after explant. Um, a cysto, this is a representative image of a cysto with an eroded um, cuff. And again, um, uh, we typically um, include preoperative cysto for patients um, just so we can be ready for what we might need to do at the time of surgery. Treatment involves removal of all the components. If orphan devices are left behind, there's a risk for subsequent separation and need for surgery for removal of those orphan pieces. Um, we culture all the components to um, gauge antibiotic treatment, but I rarely treat long-term with antibiotics after the patient has been explanted. I usually just drain, uh, uh, drain the area widely, leave a penrose, and leave the uh, skin a little bit open unless the patient has a, a really, really bad infection. For cuff erosion, there's quite a bit of controversy. Some people uh, recommend just leaving a Foley catheter for six weeks when others uh, recommend repair uh, of the urethra or a full urethroplasty. And we typically uh, proceed based upon how severe uh, the, uh, the erosion is with a urethroplasty saved for um, nearly full uh, erosions. So in summary, um, artificial urinary sphincter is very, uh, infection is very uncommon and perioperative uh, maneuvers to reduce risk include minimal touch techniques, good blood glucose control at the time of surgery and, and afterward, chlorhexidine alcohol prep. Uh, there's really little data to support pre-op culture and treatment of uh, urine cultures. Uh, however, we still do this in our practice. Clinical diagnosis is usually how this is made in most cases with very little need for imaging. And treatment involves removal of all the components with wide drainage. Thank you very much. Hello, my name is Skimora Scotland, and I'll be talking about the phenomena of infection and encrustation of stents. We'll talk about the science behind this and then end with some take-home practical advice for stent management. So first we know that the use of devices in the urinary tract is associated with increased infections, as my colleagues have mentioned. And we also know that colonization of stents with bacteria can occur within days. And some data suggest even within hours. So as you see here with a scanning electron microgram of a stent, uh, there's bacteria adhering to the stent and this was within 10 hours of placement. But we also understand that colonization does not equal infection, uh, despite the fact that some data do show that stent placement correlates with uh, UTI development. And so that's something to keep in mind. Now, what do we think is behind this association with UTIs? Well, we think it's secondary to the formation of biofilm. And biofilm is a community of both microorganisms such as bacteria, as well as extra capsular and uh, extracellular products, which then form a community on a surface such as a stent. What happens is that stent biofilm tends to be associated with typical uropathogens like E. coli, Proteus, Enterococcus. The bacteria in biofilms we've learned is also associated with the development of multiple mechanisms to resist antimicrobials and antibiotics. And then third, what we've learned is that bacteria can actually detach. So if you go back to this, bacteria tends to detach from the surface and forms again this planktonic space. What that means then is that the transient planktonic bacteria can cause UTIs. 
And that recurrent infection is probably due to this further release of bacteria from the biofilm. In terms of stent encrustation, we know that encrustation is really the deposition of crystalline material onto a stent surface. Commonly, we found that that material is made up of calcium oxalate or struvite. A major risk factor for stent encrustation is the indwelling time of the stent. And then other factors might include things like pregnancy, uh, chronic kidney disease, stone disease, and urosepsis. But what is the connection between infection and encrustation? Well, what we found is that, again, when biofilm forms, the first step is actually the formation of something called a conditioning film, which incorporates a lot of those um, extracellular products uh, that form on the surface. So again, as I was saying, uh, what happens initially with biofilm is the formation of conditioning film, uh, which is made up largely of extracellular products that form on that surface. Now the bacteria then uh, adheres to the surface and what can happen with the slightly slower process of encrustation is that when bacteria becomes planktonic, as I mentioned earlier, in addition to adhering to new areas of conditioning film, it can also adhere to that encrustation. And so these, uh, the encrustation and the biofilm become uh, really well connected. What happens is that the encrustation then becomes associated as well with infection by urease producing species like Proteus and Klebsiella. We've also found that these urease producers lead to an increase in pH, which in turn leads to a decrease in the solubility of things like struvite and hydroxyapatite, thus leading to increased encrustation. And then finally, calcium and magnesium ions are attracted to biofilm just as a matter of course, and so they also tend to crystallize onto matrix. So all of these are different ways in which uh, biofilm and encrustation tend to form problems for our patients. So the question is, you know, can we design biofilm resistant stents? Well, it turns out that many groups have tried. Over the last two decades, there have been several studies um, putting forth different types of coatings for stents. And what we found is that unfortunately, they have not been successful. Uh, we do know that currently there's no commercially available stent materials. Uh, but there is continued work by several groups and we're hoping that in the near future that will change. So the questions for practical use in, in patients are, what can we do with our patients uh, when we're concerned about UTIs? And is there really some data behind the use of antibiotics? So the first question would be, would sensitive patients really benefit from routine use of antibiotics post-operatively? And in fact, it turns out that recent studies, uh, while there have only been three studies uh, of the, in the last seven years, there's no data in any of those studies to support post-op antibiotics for routine ureteroscopy. And then the other question that most urologists have is what about antibiotics during the process of stent removal? Well, AUA guidelines and other guidelines have recommended prophylactic antibiotics, but there's really sparse data behind that. And in fact, an upcoming study that should be coming out soon in urology annals will address this and will be a, a a randomized uh, trial that shows that there's no difference in patients who are treated with prophylactic antibiotics or without antibiotics in the process of removing their stents. And so how, how we take all of this uh, into one is that one, biofilm formation occurs rapidly on stents. 
And that's something to keep in mind. The mechanism of encrustation, while it's not entirely understood, we think is secondary to the provision of uh, a substrate for, of biofilm for crystal formation and for encrustation. And that currently there is no ideal stent. Uh, we're hopeful that things are um, going to be happening in that front. But final recommendations would be to uh, potentially try to reduce stent in drilling time, as well as to consider decreasing routine stent placement in our patients. And then finally, to um, pay attention to what might be coming up soon in terms of the use of antibiotics postoperatively for patients with stents. So thanks to our panelists for those excellent presentations. Uh, in conclusion, despite longstanding recognition of the morbidity, mortality, and high cost of device-associated infections, we still have no magic bullet to prevent or treat. The guiding principles are don't use unless a clear indication and positive risk-reward, minimize dwell time if possible, Conventional markers of infection, such as urinalysis, may be misleading, and you often must rely on a clinical diagnosis. Bacterial eradication often requires complete removal of the device. And finally, antibiotic stewardship is more important than ever. No extended prophylaxis without strong evidence. Thanks again to our panel.